0: Welcome to the untold stories of real estate investing. Hosted by Wayne Courageous III, a place where active and passive investors come to hear the good, bad, and ugly of real estate investing. Our guests consist of experienced operators and investors who want others to succeed by sharing their stories. If you're looking to syndicate deals or grow your wealth passively in real estate, you've come to the right show. It's now time to sit back, take mental notes, and enjoy our next episode of The Untold Stories of Real Estate Investing.
1: Welcome to the Untold Stories of Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Wayne Courageous. For our next episode, we're excited to have Travis Watts with us today. This show is going to be unique in that we are going to dive deep into passive investing real estate. Travis is a full-time passive investor, having invested as a limited partner in over 30 deals. He's also the Director of Investor Relations with Ashcroft Capital, an investor and leader in the real estate industry. He has been investing in real estate since 2009 in multifamily, single family, and vacation rentals. Travis began investing with Ashcroft Capital several years ago and has taken part in more than 30% of their opportunities. Travis also has a background in traditional Wall Street investing and obtained a Series 7 and Series 63 license while working at a major brokerage firm with more than $400 billion in assets. Travis now dedicates his time to educating others in the world of investing and has made it his mission to share passive investment strategies in order to help others achieve and maintain wealth in real estate. Welcome to the show, Travis.
2: Wayne, thanks so much for having me. That is a very long intro. I should probably shorten one of these days.
1: <laughs> well, I, I shortened it a little bit because I was like, there's so much <laughs> good, uh, good background. And, and it's unique for our show because we've been talking a lot about active investors since we launched in, in June and about their okay. experiences. Just every, everything ranging from single family, student housing, obviously multifamily. But it's unique because y- you have positioned yourself as a full-time passive investor. So I'm excited for you to be on our show. Have I missed anything? Anything else you want to say before we we get started? Well, man,
2: that's that's all the real estate related stuff. I guess, you know, we were talking before the show. I, I've done a handful of just crazy out there things, you know, from live show production, audio visual. I worked for Walt Disney. I mean, it just oil field. I've been all over the place, man. But the one thing that's been consistent has been, uh, the real estate. That's always kind of been my underlying goal, side hobby, side hustle and now full-time uh, focus. So
1: yeah, I think you nailed it. Perfect. And I know as we get going, you know, passive investing has allowed you to do a lot of the things that you've enjoyed. So I'm sure we'll talk about all the other things outside of real estate too, that you've been able to have uh, yeah. success. So, so how did you get started in real estate investing and, um, and what has continued to attract you in real estate investing?
2: Sure. Yeah, a little bit of dumb luck and a little bit of prep. <laughs> so, in high school, I was uh, I was out visiting my dad out in Colorado. My dad's a big garage sailor, so he was out that summer. He finds this book at a garage sale, brings it home for me to read, and it was called uh, "Rich Dad Prophecy." So, not rich dad, poor dad, as everyone you know attributes to their gateway into real estate, but. That all this book really taught me, to be honest with you, all I can remember back in high school was it's basically just said don't be in the stock market because we're going to have this huge meltdown, right? And, and and this year, just for reference, was probably two thousand five, two thousand six, somewhere in that you know ballpark. So before the the Great Recession. So that's all I really knew. <laughs> Don't be in the stock market. It uh, wasn't really a pro real estate book either. So, uh, But I knew I wanted to get into real estate. My dad had a few single family homes. I, I I love this idea of passive income. It made a lot of sense to me, something I can invest in and also use or change the use of that kind of stuff. And so what happened was I kind of sat in cash, was going to college, was doing my thing. And wasn't ready to get into anything at that time, and then here comes the Great Recession, right? So I'm I'm popping out and graduating in 2009 from college. I can't find a job anywhere, you know, it's it's total crap. But there was a silver lining, which was real estate was on sale, right? So I I moved at that time back to Colorado, and I was checking out this two bed one bath house, uh, contemplating do I want to get involved with real estate now as an owner occupant, right? I got to live somewhere. So it's either rent or own. So the government's given out $8,000 tax credit, the home I'm looking at previously sold for about one sixty-five. it was selling for 95. And I thought, you know, worst case scenario, I'll get a roommate. It was near a college campus and that I was very familiar with. I grew up in, in Fort Collins about an hour outside Denver. I thought worst case, I'll just get a roommate. That'll cover my bills and I'll, I'll see if this, this works. <laughs> and so I think that's like where the momentum kind of started was seeing uh, a check be handed to me for approximately my mortgage payment. And I didn't have to do anything for that check. You know, I just had to open up you know, a spare bedroom, basically, and that concept really resonated with me. I wasn't making much money at the time at my job, and I thought, man, this—I I, want to do this times a hundred. You know what I mean? This, this is like really what I want to focus on. So, uh, I dove headfirst into single-family. I, I did fix and flips, vacation rentals, buy and holds, house hacking, owner-occupied rehabs, all kinds of stuff. And by 2015. I had burned myself out completely, uh, just too hard, too fast. And I was working an oil field job, which was 14 hour days away from home. I worked in the Middle East. It was just it was too much for me. Uh, I, I bet there's a lot of folks out there. I know there's a lot of folks out there that are career focused engineers, doctors, lawyers, attorneys, right, who want to stay career focused. They enjoy what they do, but don't have the time to go you know, bouncing around on the weekends to neighborhoods and trying to find off-market deals and, you know, knocking on doors, all that kind of stuff. So, 2015 was a big pivot year where I thought, hey, listen, I love real estate. I love the tax advantages. I like, you know, a lot of uh, things about investing in real estate, but I don't like to be hands-on. I don't like to be managing tenants, putting things together myself. I wasn't very good at rehab and being a handyman. So, I just wanted to invest passively hands-off. And that's where I discovered multifamily and syndication investing and private placements. And just basically the bottom line was how do I become hands-off as an investor? So 2015 through 2020 has been 100% passive deals. And I sold all my single family and that's all I do. And so that that's, that's, Created some miracles in, in my life and with my wife, and just kind of our lifestyle overall. So, I'm sure we'll get into that. But that's kind of the recap of how I got started and, and what brings us here to uh, today.
1: Yeah, it's unique that you've had that active experience from 2009 to 2012. You realize that, hey, it's not exactly what you want to do for the reasons you mentioned. And then, you know, 2012, you mentioned the pivot. So, how did you find the deal sponsor, and what did you do to prepare yourself, educate yourself to get on the passive side?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it was so so it was 2015 was the year, the the big pivot year. So it was here's what I did right and what I did wrong. <laughs> I the, the good thing was I did go back to the drawing board. I did dedicate, I did set goals, I did listen to podcasts and read books and do all these things. The problem was again, I went too hard, too fast. And I set this goal in January 2015. I said I'm going to read Fifty-two books this year—that's a book a week—and I'm gonna knock this crap out, and I'm gonna figure it out. <laughs> well, the, the problem is, if you're reading fifty-two books a year, and podcasts, and audiobooks, and mentors, and networking groups, and and and, there's no spare time, right? So I'm back to to you know square one. I don't have the time, so I wasn't taking action um, as much as I probably should have been. It's kind of that finding that balance, that you know equilibrium between educating yourself, cool getting a few takeaways and then go out and try it, you know, go experiment with that. So that's kind of what I failed to do ultimately that year. But, uh, I did catch up <laughs> 2016, 2017. I mean, I, I got to where I wanted to go. It's just 2015 was too hardcore. I probably should have read like five books, right. <laughs> that were like very relevant to what I wanted and, and just gone that way. But, um, in any case, uh, you know, to answer your question more specifically, how did I find these sponsors? Not the right way, I guess. <laughs> I, I found some local folks that were local to where I live that were doing. In Colorado? What's that? Is
1: that in Colorado?
2: Yeah, I was in Colorado. Yep. Yeah, so some Denver groups, but but the thing was, they weren't doing Denver deals. They were doing deals in other states, right? And for some reason, I thought that would be so important to find a local operator. Uh, I, I don't know why I thought that, but they were newer to the space, didn't really have the experience, track record, whatever. But but I did like the people. I did like the general partners, and they ended up doing some good deals and and some okay deals and and a couple not so okay deals, <laughs> and, you know. But it was just the, this lesson learned of like yeah i probably just should have focused on more of the track record experience and and in an operator that really specializes in what they do and and really does it well and and that's what i failed to do initially and and eventually got on that right track uh to investing that way so
1: that, that was my first year or two of experience was was that No, it's good advice. And I think a lot of people, I mean, it's especially with the relationships, you know, when you have those relationships with the deal sponsors, it it goes a long way. And best way to, you know, a lot of times the relationships come with your local local group. So definitely pros and cons, especially if they're, you know, pro, if they're local and they're investing in those, you know, cities and they have a track record or they're partnering with those that have a track record for sure. I do think it's, it is harder when, you'd have those sponsors that are going outside of their markets and maybe, you know, a few hours, four or five hours, you know, that's not bad, but when it's in completely different States and you know that it's hard. So is, was there uh, an experience that, you know, really made you think twice about going with the local? I mean, is there an actual experience or was it all about the returns and,
2: well, yeah, so that that's kind of the the problem, I guess, is what I did is I started, I was looking so heavily, I was like an analysis paralysis over the deal itself. And so all I'm looking at really, is are, are the projected returns on all these different offerings from all these different groups. And it's like, I was a little naive and thinking, well, this one says it's 10% a year and this one says it's eight. So I'm just going to do the 10, right? That's more money. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, but without factoring, who's actually going to execute that deal? Can they actually execute that deal? And one, one example, one true story, I partnered up with a group and we did a deal out in in Georgia they bought a great asset in a great location and a great market at a great time. I mean, all that stuff was in line, but the sponsor, man, to, to no credit to them, <laughs> they they basically made every mistake you could make and, and they couldn't execute the business plan. And they got a little ways into the rehabs and thought, man, it's a lot of work. We can't pull it off. And excuse after excuse, right? They ended up just selling it early. And um, But what I learned from that experience was what I initially had done my homework on, which was the asset class and the market, make a huge amount of difference in your success, right? And so that really taught me uh, a lot about markets and, and deals themselves, and, and kind of reiterated my point around what I invest in is value add, you know, mostly B and C class multifamily apartments uh, in, in particular markets. And so uh, to to see that really come through, to see that. Even someone that really didn't know what they were doing, that kind of messed up a lot of things, we still ended up profitable and able to exit uh, the deal. And so that was kind of my first experience. And so I thought, well, man, if I could get the right deal in the right market with the right sponsor, (laughs) then, then my risk could potentially really go down. And so that's what I ended up kind of getting to over time.
1: Yeah. And I was going to ask this later in the podcast, but uh, go ahead and ask it now. Uh, you know, what are those target markets that you're feeling really comfortable investing in? And then, you know, we talked about uh, value add. So there's that risk uh, spectrum of opportunistic, value add and core. Uh, can you talk to us about uh, your risk tolerance and, and what the returns are for the different risks that you're potentially taking?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it really starts with with knowing yourself, knowing your own criteria and kind of knowing why that is, right? And so how do you get to, to those answers through some education, <laughs> you know, whether that be a seminar or a book or whatever. So it's kind of a two part question. I'll answer the first part, which is before COVID, I was going around nationwide to real estate conferences, multifamily conferences, investing conferences. And and for those who have been to these, you know, national uh, types of events, you know that there's always uh, the, the person with their crystal ball or the economist or what have you, that's putting up on the board. Here's, here's the top 10 markets of, you know, 2015, 16, 17, 18. And I'm a big, Uh, advocate for leveraging other people's expertise. And that was a unique experience because I got to see, well, one economist said this and the other said that, and the third said this and the fourth. And so what I'm trying to do is tie in the commonalities and say, wow, everybody says, you know, just to use a a blanket example, like Dallas is a great market, you know, in general, you know, that kind of stuff. Obviously these things change, right? Every year is a little bit different, but I still hold a lot of portfolio in uh, Dallas, Fort Worth and the surrounding sub markets there. And also out in Florida, in uh, Jacksonville, uh, Tampa, and uh, Orlando. But I, that you know, in, in full transparency, I've got investments all over the place from Colorado and Ohio and, and Georgia and Arizona and Michigan. So it, it just it just kind of depends. But I like to do that high level research, kind of that macro level. You know, where are people migrating to? What are the trends? Where are companies relocating their headquarters to? I like to know that stuff. Uh, from a high level, and then I let the sponsorship group fill me in on why a very specific submarket might be a great play or a great investment you know i can 't memorize all the submarkets out there, so I kind of leave it to to the experts to to fill me in on that so uh, so that 's kind of how I go about doing it the the other question the second part of your question was about kind of the the core the value add the opportunistic and the risk reward ratios so for those listening that may not be familiar and in full transparency, I'm not a hundred percent familiar here, but I can go through like what core is, which is basically kind of your safest quote unquote uh, investment profile. Usually you've got a low debt leverage with it. I've seen even like 50% debt and we're talking about a loan or a mortgage, right? So you've got a lot of cushion there for a bad economy or things that go south. You've got room, you know, to kind of save yourself, so to speak. Additionally, those properties are often in major metropolitan areas. So think about like a, I don't know, a 200 unit apartment complex in, in Manhattan or something like that, a San Francisco or something, right? So very, very safe, known markets, so to speak. And then, then you've got like Core Plus, which usually has a little higher leverage to it. And by the way, Core and Core Plus is kind of like where a lot of institutional capital plays in that environment. So pensions and, and REITs and things like that, they don't want unexpected events they don't specialize in massive rehabs for the most part they're just wanting to it's a cash flow play. They want to park 70 million dollars and just let it let it go for five or ten years and not have to do a lot to the properties uh, rightfully. so and then you come to value add which is kind of the, the sector I like value add it kind of focuses roughly 50-50 on cash flow which everybody loves, and equity upside potential. So you're taking older properties, maybe in the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, and you're you're renovating them to be up to the market standards. You know, package locker systems, covered carports, maybe self-storage on site, fencing in the ground level yards. There's all things you can do that are quote unquote value add for both the tenants and the residents and us, the investors. So that's kind of the the space I like to play in. You usually have a little higher leverage on those. I I don't even know, 65 to 80% leverage. You know, that's kind of a range, I guess. So therefore technically higher risk, depending on how you look at that. And then opportunistic, you know, would be the riskiest. These are properties that have big issues. They have a lot of deferred maintenance, maybe. Maybe their occupancy is only 50%. So they're kind of struggling. Maybe the last owner didn't take care of it, maybe there's a big fire or a flood. So the business model is usually let's go in and take something non-performing and let's turn it around and make it performing again. And so it's, you know, higher risk, higher reward potential, really. And I like to generally stay out of that space uh, unless I'm working with an extremely well-versed operator that can just prove it over and over and over again that they've they've done this for <laughs> 30 or 40 years and here's what what they have to show for it. It's just riskier. That's all, and that doesn't mean anybody listening, you know, shouldn't be involved in that stuff, or or they shouldn't do core because it's for institutional buyers. That it doesn't make any sense. It's knowing yourself and your own criteria, and I'm kind of the, I guess, moderate risk profile. So that's why I do uh, value add. So yeah, that's kind of my two part answer.
1: Thank you, Travis, for that synopsis on the opportunistic, value add, and core asset classes. What did you see, I should say, pre-COVID with returns and value add? And what are you seeing now? Or when you're looking at investment opportunities, are you having the same uh, returns that you expected uh, pre-COVID?
2: That's a great question. I get asked this a lot too. And here's kind of my take. I've always been of the opinion or the mindset of there's always a, a deal out there. Okay, whether we're in a a, a booming bull economy, whether we're in a recession, whether whatever. Like what what happens with real estate and everything else, including stocks and 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 the whole spectrum, things adjust for the economic circumstances. So what I'm seeing at this very moment, here we're talking in, in August 2020. is we're seeing slight discounts on a lot of multifamily, but not huge discounts. We're not talking about 2008, 2009, where, where things really were going on sale in, in real estate. We're talking about 3%, 4%, maybe 5% discounts uh, because of a slight softening that's happening you know, in, in the market. So my opinion is, well, okay, so if you're going to do a new deal today and you're getting a 5% discount, which is, you know, realistic to what's happening. That still is the equal type of opportunity that I was seeing six months ago when market conditions were stronger and we paid accordingly. So I've I've still been investing. Since March, I've invested in about four opportunities, all value-add multifamily, and, and I will continue investing even if the economy does go into a, a quote-unquote, you know, Depression. Uh, I still think there's going to be deals to be had. There's going to be more distressed opportunities that get taken over. So realistically, I think only only because certain groups have become more conservative do I see a slightly lower potential return. But I think that's just to be conservative. You know what I mean? It's not that the deal isn't isn't performing. You know, or is performing worse than than what it was. So uh, so we'll see. Time will tell. Uh, but but that's kind of my philosophy. And, and I'll share a real quick story on that. There's there's a guy, a lot of people know this individual out there, uh, tremendous track record, 20, 30, 40 years, I, I don't even know, doing, doing this uh, syndication stuff. And in 2015, I had reached out to this guy to kind of pick his brain. <laughs> and he says, uh, I'm going to stop doing syndications. Uh, He's he's a general partner for the foreseeable future because I think 2016 is going to be a massive, massive economic collapse. And so they quit doing deals. And so I've been sitting on that list, 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. They've done like one deal. And meanwhile, I've done a ton of deals and, you know, in hindsight, I mean, he could have doubled, tripled, quadrupled his money, you know, in that time frame, given that he's a, he's an operator. So it's okay to have that opinion. It's just a different opinion. <laughs> so, so long-winded answer, but that's kind of my take on that.
1: No, it's a great answer. And the next question I have really in relating to COVID is when you're looking at deals that sponsors bring, you've talked about, you know, markets that you know, you're bullish in Dallas being one certain markets in Florida. Is there anything changing on the way on how you're looking, you know, separate from returns that we just talked about, but any other things that now you're looking more carefully at uh, when selecting that deal? Yeah.
2: I mean, just in general, what I'm looking for right now is a little over the top being conservative. So there was a recent deal I was looking at where they've got a a full 2% margin on their exit cap rate to what they're going in at. So that that's being pretty conservative. That's assuming a pretty weak market upon exit. And I like to see that. The other thing I look at pretty closely, more so than before, are break even occupancies. They were kind of creeping up, you know. Again, for anyone listening that's not familiar, you know, you got a hundred unit, let's say, property, break even occupancy 70%. So you can lose 30 tenants and still be able to pay your bills before you start running into trouble. Now, what I'm seeing is, 60 percent. I saw one deal a couple of weeks ago, 50 percent break-even occupancy. These are great because if you look back at the history of the property, which most often you can see on these older properties, it's probably never hit that low of an occupancy. Therefore, you should technically and theoretically be profitable even throughout a recession. So those are things I'm putting a little more emphasis on. I'm also kind of reeling it in a little bit, to investing with kind of my, my, my top five operators, we'll say I've done a partner with 14, 15 operators. At at this point, I'm kind of going with the ones who have outperformed, not just financially outperformed, but outperformed my expectations of what I expected them to do and communication, transparency, reporting, being on time, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, So I'm I'm kind of honing in to do more deals with those operators as well. So, uh, but overall, you know, just being a little more choosy, <laughs> but uh, not a lot's changed, to be honest with you, and and how I look at deals.
1: Yeah, that's good, and a lot of people, you know, have are just thinking pre-COVID, post-COVID. So it's great advice and insight on how you're looking at it. So shifting over to you know mistakes that you've made and and common overlooked items that passive investors not look at. What advice or what experiences can you share that you're okay being a little more vulnerable and saying, hey, this was a mistake. This is what I learned, and to help others.
2: Yeah, so I am a big believer in diversifying a portfolio. It doesn't matter what we're talking about—stocks, bonds, mutual funds, real estate, whatever, gold, silver, oil, gas. Just—I'm a big advocate for you. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's kind of my thing. And you'll hear different opinions on that. You know, I've—I've heard the exact opposite. Right, put all your eggs in one basket and watch it closely. There's that famous quote. Whoever coined that one? But so here's why I bring that up. I've got 80% of my investable portfolio in value-add multifamily projects, but I allocate 20% to kind of experimenting. I've done first lien notes. I've done distressed debt funds. I've done, you know, lease-to-own stuff. I've I've done all these different, you know, strategies out there and they're kind of hit and miss. And I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in a lot of that, that stuff. And what happened was, this is a, True story of what happened three years ago. I think I was introduced through an investment group that I'm in to a distressed debt fund. They're basically buying cheap debt off uh, banks, and then they're they're trying to collect on it, right? Whether that be credit card debt or or what have you. And so I partnered in this fund. I put too much money in this fund. It's not. It's something I could barely just understand enough to feel comfortable making the investment. And one of the partners in there, not the operators that i vetted, but it was kind of like an operator of an operator. It was kind of a complex system here, ended up being a Ponzi scheme. So we ended up losing like 35% of that whole portfolio that had to go into receivership and all that. And, and the point is, I took my eye off the ball. I had something that I knew, I understood, I was a believer in, I'd done my homework on, I had had success with. This is this is multifamily and all of a sudden I shifted gears and thought, well hey, why don't I just do everything out there that that produces passive income, right? <laughs> and and that's kind of the I refer to it kind of as like the the Bitcoin mistake, you know, and I had so many people reach out to me when when Bitcoin was skyrocketing at whatever, 16,000 or whatever, and it goes to 20 and then bounces back to 10. And I'm just so fortunate I I didn't go for that. And it's not anti Bitcoin. It's just I don't understand it. I don't. That's not what I know. That's not what I've studied. And so it, it wasn't a good fit for me. So, I guess the, long story short, allocate a percentage maybe of your portfolio to kind of these experimental things, but but really try to hone in on what you know and understand and what makes sense to you and and kind of focus more on that. And
1: that's that's what I've done. So, a lot of the traditional investors, you know, they're possibly listening to the podcast to learn more about investing in multifamily. So, you know, to some, you know, this would be an experimental Category for them, sure. you know, they're yeah. they're learning about it, but you know, the rest of their portfolios and and stocks, mutual funds, yep. and and bonds. So, yep. you have a lot of knowledge, and I would say you're an active passive investor, <laughs> yep. where a lot of people are are learning and and hearing the successes that you know you've had. One question I have is, you know, for investors that are are looking to get in, what you know, if they're looking at value add, are are you still seeing that seven to eight, nine percent cash on cash and twelve to fifteen percent IR? When you got in years, you know, say four or five years ago, it was not uncommon for over 20% IR. Are you still seeing those? And what's realistic for, you know, somebody that is just getting into a value add, you know, and let's say it's a stable property, you know, what type of returns can they comfortably feel like they can get? without it feeling too good to be true.
2: Sure, yeah. I will put a, a quick disclaimer out there. This isn't, you know, pertaining to any particular operator or sponsor or anything like that. I'm just I'm I'm taking a look right now in my head of my entire portfolio among 14-15 operators in, in this type in the space. And I'm looking at and I'm trying to factor all this stuff together and I would say that what i'm seeing for projected returns today in the environment we're in is still what you described it's still a 7 8 9% cash flow kind of thing with a potential upside to be 12 13 14 15 whatever and again to your point what did i you know some of those first deals i did in 2015 2016 exited early and we did get over a 20% irr. Uh, you're exactly right. And so I look for groups that kind of underpromise and overdeliver. And in full transparency since covid's hit in march, I haven't had any properties sell. So I can't realistically give you an answer to like how that's affected things. I think a lot of owners right now are just sort of pumping the brakes on putting things up for sale in hopes that they don't have to take a discount on these properties given 12, 24 months out from today and uh, kind of looking back and going, crap, you know, <laughs> we sold that for a five or 6% discount and we should have just held it. So I, I don't know, I, markets, you know, everybody knows we have market cycles, we have the ups and downs and the great times to invest and the not so great times to invest. But again, the way I look at it, what gives me sleep at night, is not putting too much emphasis on IRRs and potential equity. It's just looking at cash flow and saying, is that conservative? Is that realistic? If I invest in this property and they tell me there's a 7% preferred return, do I really think it's going to continue a 7% pref through a recession, through the ups and downs and the sideways? And if I do believe that, I'll invest in it. And that's really what I'm looking for at the end of the day is I'm banking on the cash flow. So everybody's different. That's just kind of my take on it. But uh, yeah, there there haven't been massive adjustments as we talked about that, that I've seen personally through COVID. Some kind of similar deals to 2019 for the most part, maybe a slight discount.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned earlier with the value add, you have that 50% cash flow and 50% equity, you know, at the end of sale. So you know, you're looking to to get those seven to eight nine percent annual returns. And then at the upside, when that strategy has been completed with renovations, uh, stabilizing the property, higher occupancy, higher rents, making the property more efficient on operating expenses, year five, year six, that's when the the larger equity piece comes in, right?
2: Right. Yeah. Just rough numbers. It's not always 50-50, obviously. But yeah, just in general, that's sort of what, what you see is you know seven to nine. And then hopefully and technically, you can double that. Uh, type of return at the end of the project. When all is said and done, you're looking at how much you really got in hand over over that say five year period. You're looking back and averaging that over five years, and hopefully you're you're in the double digits. So in my experience, it has been that way. Just so everyone listening knows, you know the the dreams have come true, but you know, but but you never know you never know, right? Bad operator, bad market, shifting demographics, recessions, all all things factor in political risk, interest rates. I mean, a lot of stuff could change in the environment. So that's why I try not to put too much emphasis on predicting what the world looks like in five years because nobody knows.
1: Yeah. Which is the importance of that cash now, cash flow. Right. Exactly. Uh, today, not looking at that five years. But I think, you know, from Anybody, whether you're an active passive or you're a passive passive investor, you know, looking at the underwriting or at least the projections, you know, what's year one in today's environment? Are they showing any uh, rent increases? You know, and if they're showing a two to three percent increase on year one, you know, that should bring some red flags. It should be zero, possibly you know, negative in in some markets on rent. And then from operating expenses, you know, you had mentioned that you're break even. On some of these deals that are being presented are 50, 60%. I mean, that's that's incredible. Are they leveraging their size in those markets to allocate labor? What are they doing? If rental rates aren't dramatically going up over the next two years, then obviously they're dramatically reducing expenses. Have you dug into those?
2: Yeah, these are just again kind of as a general disclaimer to a deal like that. If you're seeing a break even occupancy, it's it's probably not that they're getting some incredible deal, <laughs> you know, that that's off market. It's probably a lot to do with, you know, the the debt leverage and things that they're putting on it and and in general what you're going to see with something like that are probably lower uh, projected returns. So this is why it's important to know your risk profile, right? Because a lot of folks, even years ago, even in 2015, I was talking to an operator, he was launching a fund. And he says, we're, uh," it was was like two things, which I thought were crazy at the time. But there was a lot of people in the boat that kind of resonated with this. It was something like, we're only going to put 50% debt leverage on our projects. And we're only going to distribute 75 percent of the available cash flow something like that and and just to be like ultra 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 conservative because there's always folks in the mindset that we're about to go into the great depression it doesn't matter what year we're talking about and there's a lot of people that resonate with that message so you know if you're okay with you know three four five percent annualized returns there's there's ways to you know to have a conservative project line up to that. But there's also folks on the other extreme spectrum that that are into that opportunistic stuff or the new construction and new build and think, God, I could potentially double my money in three years or something like that, you know. Uh yeah, potentially, but there there's a hell of a lot of risk in that too. So, but hey, you know, whatever. You got a hundred million bucks and you're putting 50 K into it, whatever. Right.
1: <laughs> so it all goes back to the risk, right? right? If you're right. If you have the money that can be a little more risky than sure. It goes back to your structure of if you're having eighty percent into assets that you know and twenty percent that you're testing out or you know seeing if it if it makes sense, yeah. you know, you can, you can balance that. So from a passive investor side, you know, what can, what can someone expect from the beginning to end? Like, you know, just if you could walk us through on, you know, you say you've, you've gotten the education, at least a basic knowledge, you're a, a medical doctor, you know, attorney, you know, one that's not going to dig too deep into it. So let's start with that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, kind of what what to expect there. Uh, to my surprise, too, when I got into this this whole world of passive investing and private placements, I, I guess my assumption at, in the beginning was if I'm going to be a, an investor in apartments, I'm going to have to be like a billionaire. I'm going to have to have 20, 30 years of experience in real estate or th- these are like my my preconceived ideas. But come to find, most investors that do this type of stuff are the the doctor, dentist, lawyer, attorney, business owner, athlete, what have you. It's a highly paid individual that is parking some cash that they don't necessarily need to live on. Right. Maybe they don't want to put it all into the stock market. So. So this is kind of the, the basic. I mean, everyone's got their own approach. So this is kind of the general approach. It's a relationship business. So you need to build some relationships. Now that can be done as simple as going to Google and finding some operators and then calling them up and saying, what do you do? I'd like to get to know your firm better. I mean, you can do that. You can get on forums like Bigger and and what have you. And Kind of network with people who's been investing in the space. What's your success been? What operators do you like? You know, you kind of have some some private uh, messaging there. For me, it was seminars. I just found that hey, I know we can't do it at this very moment. You know, besides the online conferences, but I like being in an environment where there's there's a thousand people and two or 300 of them are passive investors. And I can just kind of mosey around and, and pick people's brains, so to speak, and swap experience. And I got to learn who some of the key operators are and kind of what to look for and, and all of that. So, so okay. So it starts with the, the education and the networking, right? And building relationships to an extent, figuring out who you want to partner with, because ideally you've already figured out what you kind of want to do, what your criteria is. Do you like value add or core or self storage or mobile home parks you got to you got to do kind of some of that education up front whether through podcast or reading and then you I, all I'm trying to do at the end of the day is align my interest and in philosophy with other people that have a like minded idea you know we kind of generally agree on just general concepts like <laughs> whether that be markets or or deal types or the economy or whatever so you're kind of like building a friendship more or less you're going to be communicating with these folks for three years, five years, seven years, 10 years. It depends on the business plan. So you want to make sure you, you, you do your due diligence that way. And then you're, you're getting on their deal list. So they're saying, hey, we'll keep you in mind when we have a new opportunity pop up, be sure to send it your way, that kind of stuff. And so expect to get an email at some point that says new opportunity, you know, 300 unit in Dallas, blah, blah, blah. And uh, then, then you start vetting the deal, maybe get some, some references, uh, keep you know, talking to the operator, get your questions asked, attend the webinars, the Q&A calls they have, uh, stuff like that. And then you're, you're just making a decision, really. I mean, what we're talking about right now is all the active part of you know, being an active passive. Um, and once you make that decision, I like this deal, I like this operator, I want to do this. You know, send in your funds, sign your docs, and you know, off you go. You can be as passive as you want to be. Uh, you'll usually get either a monthly update or a quarterly update, and a monthly distribution or a quarterly distribution, depending on the business type. And like I said, it's three years, five years, seven years, ten years, depending on the business model. And and away you go. And uh, <laughs> you know, as you go through these motions over and over and over, when you have the spare time, it gets easier and easier. And this is where you can start to scale a portfolio passively. You know, you can go from doing one deal like that to having 50 deals. I know people in my network that have done probably 150 plus uh, private placements, you know, as as a passive investor, and they can get through them pretty quickly. (laughs) They've looked at
1: enough deals at this point. So, yeah, that's kind of the general process. So, you mentioned documents. What are some of those documents and Obviously, you're not attorney and all, but highly recommend anybody listening get an attorney with those documents. But can you uh, talk to us about the documents that you typically see and some things to look out for?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the private placement world, again, for those listening that may not be familiar, publicly traded companies have to do a certain bit of reporting and transparency, you know, in a public way to where, Investors buying a stock, for example, don't have to sign a bunch of paperwork and go through all this on their own. When you get to the private world, uh, it could be a similar type of investment or or company or real estate project, but there is a lot of paperwork involved because they have to disclose a lot, you know, due to the SEC regulations. So, what you commonly have is a, a PPM—that's a private placement memorandum—kind of outlining what this investment is, what the risks are, you know, so that you fully understand who's involved and and what exactly you're investing in, that kind of stuff. That's a pretty long document. It can be sometimes hundreds of pages. It can be, let's say, at minimum, maybe, I don't know, 100 pages. But this is where you want to leverage some expertise from your own uh, legal uh, team uh, to get through that. And so you're signing that uh, and making sure that makes sense to you and you don't have any questions. And if you do ask those questions, number two is like usually an operating agreement. So that's how the LLC, the limited partnership is going to be operating and kind of the ins and outs of that. The key players, the general partners, you know, voting rights, all this kind of stuff. And then you've got a subscription agreement usually, which is what you're subscribing to when you send in your money. It's like you're buying 25,000 shares of this LLC, for example, which is owning this property, you know, so those are some of your common uh, legal docs. Uh, Most people execute those in a matter of a a few days. And uh, sometimes you have to verify accreditation if if the group's doing a 506C uh, offering, which is a publicly advertised investment opportunity, different different ways to do that through broker dealers, through attorneys, through CPAs, through, you know, these online platforms like verifyinvestor.com. Uh, just making sure that you're that you meet that criteria to be an accredited investor. Other groups do self certification because they do 506b offerings, um, you know, Regulation A, that kind of stuff. So, anyway, it, you know, each one's a little bit different. Not to get bogged down in all the legal jargon, but um, that's typically and commonly what what you might expect. And uh, <laughs> try, to, try to find a group that that does all this stuff digitally because my god, I had to do that once manually and print out hundreds of pages and. Uh, I, I was not a happy camper. So, uh, <laughs> most people are using Adobe Sign or DocuSign, stuff like that. But uh, yeah, that's kind of how that works. You
1: no, know, and you mentioned a few things that I want to point out, like 506B, 506C. Yeah. Yeah. And accredited. Can you share just high level on 506B, 506C, and then differentiating an accredited and a sophisticated investor?
2: Yeah, a lot of folks, myself included, when I first got started in this, this world uh, of private placements thought, you know, everything's only available to accredited investors, high net worth, high income people. And if you don't meet the criteria, there's nothing you can do here. And it's it's rapidly evolved and evolving as we speak. And a lot of these sponsors are doing a 506B offering. So we'll talk about that first. What that means is it's, it's a private placement offering where if the sponsor chooses to do so they can bring on 35 sophisticated investors those are folks that understand what this is that they're investing in they understand the risk profile you know either through an advisor or on their own they can they can comprehend what they're doing here so they're sophisticated in the sense that uh, they know what they're investing in uh, that's a sophisticated investor so you could take 35 up to 35 sophisticated and then an unlimited number of accredited investors which means that you either have a million dollar net worth, excluding your primary residence, whether you're single or married, you can qualify through net worth that way, or you can qualify by income. So if you're single, it's 200,000 per year in income for the last couple of years with the expectation to do the same in the current year. And if you're married, that bounces up to 300,000 per year for the last couple of years, expectations to do the same in the current year. So if you meet that criteria, you know, the, the world is is your oyster, so to speak. You can participate in pretty much any offering out there. So as long as you meet the minimum investment and, and all that kind of stuff. So a 506C, C as in Charlie, is where you can publicly advertise the offering to the general public, but you can only take accredited investors and they must verify uh or you must verify that they're accredited so you can use the like we mentioned verifyinvestor.com broker dealer attorney you know CPA there's different ways it can just be as simple as a letter from your CPA saying i've taken a look at the assets of of John Smith and turns out yes he's accredited and they they sign and put their their uh, you know registration license number on there so it, but but no exceptions right it's accredited only so the reason people i believe think that in this industry it's all accredited is because that's the only deals that you see publicly advertised <laughs> so it kind of gives you this illusion that man all i see says accredited only but a lot of groups the majority of groups are running off 506b and as long as you have a, a pre-existing relationship with that operator you they, they know you you know them they understand your risk tolerance and your goals that kind of stuff they can potentially send you their offerings in the future. You can't do it on day one, but that's called the pre existing relationship. So, or substantiative relationship, I think it's called uh, legally. But again, not an attorney or anything like that. It's just that that's kind of how the world works there in the, in the space. Different courses for different horses.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a great recap. And, you know, I think if anybody is seeing, so, you know, we all are, you know, we Google something and then next thing we know, it's in our Amazon advertising, Facebook <laughs> yeah. advertising. So be prepared for those advertisements. If you're seeing those advertisements that are showing two X multiple on your, on your investment and 18% IR, all those investment metrics that they're projecting, you know, likely, or well, it is because they are publicly advertising an investment to stay in compliance with SEC uh, regulations. You know, they are looking for accredited investors. And Travis, I think you did a fantastic job of explaining, you know, what an accredited investor is. And I know at CREI Partners, we focus a lot on the 506B only because I really, we talked about earlier that you're having an investment that takes five, you know, seven years. That's a long time to be in business with somebody. And it just for me and many other deal sponsors out there are looking for having that relationship which yeah. is required in that in that 506b. So yep. thank you Travis for going into all those details from a the legal aspects and I know you're not an attorney so caveat talk to an attorney but I think anybody that's listening in from passive investor side a lot of value was was
2: made there. Awesome. You bet.
1: So had there been any real estate investing stories that you haven't shared, but want to share to avoid, to help others avoid pitfalls? You
2: know, I, I think I've shared just in general, you know, through Instagram, Facebook, podcasting, pretty much most of my stories. But, you know, the one that I alluded to earlier really just continuously sets home with me that, you know, you, you've got to partner with the right folks. You've got to invest in what makes sense and what you understand, and if you don't feel comfortable or ready then just simply don't invest you know and, until you are and you know taking your eye off the ball like that is can be sometimes disastrous so yeah i i think that the more education i, I forget who coined this this quote but it might have been like Robert Kiyosaki, but when your education goes up, your risk comes down. And so I'm a huge advocate for self-education, whether it's through networking and mentors and coaches and programs and seminars and podcast books, it doesn't matter. It's just whatever works for you and keep on learning, keep on, you know, like, like I mentioned earlier, I I study the macro level trends. So I like to look at kind of what's happening generally in the U S right now. And tax wise, political wise, you know, migration trend wise. So just keep up with that stuff. You don't have to be active per se, but you know, when you get five, 10 minutes, read a few headlines and maybe run a Google search on the weekend and just, just kind of stay fresh with it. So yeah, words of my wisdom.
1: (laughs) Perfect. Well, that answered my next question, unless you had anything else on it was any financial advice on saving or diversifying income to gain financial freedom
2: yeah you know we we really didn't get into this topic and I'll cover it real quickly but i i I came from a very frugal mindset at a young age because of my parents right both parents were extreme frugality and still are today and and I'm grateful for that now. I used to kind of think it was <laughs> it was crappy when I was younger being called cheap but <laughs> the, the the politically correct word is frugal. And uh, but but anyway, what I kind of did is four steps, really, it's it, this is kind of what I believe at the core of, of things, unless you're going to inherit money or, or sell a business for millions of dollars, which is great, you know, and I recommend that. But uh, <laughs> but for me, it was like, make as much money as I could make uh, using my highest and best, you know, network skill set, what have you. Right. So that was an oil field job that was flipping houses. That was side hustles and side businesses. I just did everything I could to make money. And then number two is living on as little of that uh, income that you generate for a period of time. This isn't a lifelong philosophy. This is like, say, five, 10 years, that kind of thing. Uh, So you're being extremely frugal for a while as you hustle it out. And then the third thing would be to take that margin from what you're earning and what you're living on and invest all of it if you can into investments for me that that's passive income generating investments and the fourth thing is just kind of a general caveat of like avoid bad debt avoid if you can you know personal loans and and car debt and if you can student loan debt and if you have these things try to pay it off as soon as you can and i literally just followed those four steps i literally did for 5 or 10 years and that's what kind of what got me to the to the financial independence level by doing that, and it's not easy. I'm, I, I know that sounds easy, just four steps, but but it's worth it. <laughs> it's just worth it, uh, in my opinion. So that's my general advice on just frugality and, and money and budgeting and all that. Well,
1: thanks for sharing. And as we close, you know, what are some of your proudest moments investing in real estate?
2: Proudest moments probably come from where I set a specific goal uh, or objective, and then I executed on it. And I'll tell you why. I, I had the single family house back in the day <laughs> and I had bought it at a good price. And coincidentally, two years later, I sold it for a, a phenomenal price with an off-market offer. And But I didn't feel much fulfillment. I didn't really feel proud. It it just happened. It was like, well, that was weird and unexpected. And of course, I'm grateful that it happened, but I wasn't proud because I didn't do anything. (laughs) That wasn't what I set out to do. It wasn't my plan. So instead, the the things that make me most proud are where I I really hustled and, and I had my criteria defined and I found an off-market property, and I was, you know, whatever. And then I, I just banged out the the execution of it, invested in the right areas because I did my research and whatever. Then I get, I get some kind of return on the on the flip side, and think, wow, you know, I created that, I produced that, that was really cool. And uh, so that that's where it comes comes from from me. Anything I'm proud of is something I really dedicate a lot of work into, and didn't luck out or or what have you.
1: Well, I'm grateful that you were able to be a guest today and appreciate you know all the insights. Travis are there any other items you want to share uh, about Ashcroft or yourself and how can listeners find you
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and I appreciate you having me on the show too. And some that we didn't talk about is a big way that I give back is giving my time back to others who are on their own journey to financial independence in any capacity. And so what I do, I created this, uh, this Calendly little calendar link, and I do these 15 minute Q and A calls with people all over the board, nationwide, 18 year olds, 70 year olds, we talk anything real estate and I, I open that opportunity seriously to anybody. I don't, I, there's no upsell. I don't sell, I don't have any books or conferences or seminars or programs. I just like to network. And right now in COVID, it's very tough to do so at conferences. So this is kind of my, my networking that I'm, I'm missing a lot. So, if you want to set up a a free 15-minute Q&A, anything we talked about here, you have questions on or you want to talk about your own situation, I'm happy to do that. I'm not an advisor or anything like that, but I'd just be happy to, uh, you know, swap experience, share lessons learned. And second thing I'll mention, I have a 20-page PDF download. Again, not anything for sale, not an upsell, but it's it's called uh, Understanding Real Estate Private Placements. And it's basically a quick rundown on industry terminology, how this stuff works from the inside out, how to vet markets, operators, that kind of stuff. You can get both of these, that that call and or the PDF, one, the other, both, whatever, at uh, ashcroftcapital.com forward slash connect with Travis. So it's ashcroftcapital.com forward slash connect with Travis. Yeah, please do because I genuinely wholeheartedly love networking with people and and talking real estate. My wife's about sick of hearing about it. So please give me
1: that break. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Travis, thank you so much. I hope you stay well and safe and look forward to connecting with you soon.
2: All right, Wayne. Thank you. Take care. (coughs)
0: That's all for this episode. We hope you subscribe, share, and leave a review of the show. For more information about passively investing in multifamily apartments, check out Wayne's free ebook by going to CREIPartners.com forward slash ebook. Also, follow us on Facebook by searching CREI Partners. This was the untold stories of real estate investing.